hello from the people of the Wurrumungu land of the Northern Territory, where I grew up in a small town of Tennant Creek, and while not my country, certainly where I gained deep knowledge of their culture and a bit more of an understanding of my family's own people from Victoria. I'm Dan Borsha from the ABC, and it's great to be with you this morning and across today as your Master of Ceremonies on this the second day of what I've told has been a really great conference so far, having these crucial conversations about language, how that affects culture and society, and also the impacts of intergenerational trauma and how we start to deal with that and move ahead to becoming perhaps a more reconciled nation. We've got plenty on the agenda today, lots of great panel discussions uh, with a bevy of some of Australia, New Zealand and some of the world's leading academics in this space. To get us started this morning, it's my great pleasure to welcome uh, Nunawal custodian uh, Tyrone Bell, who's going to be sharing some of uh, his knowledge here with a welcome to his country uh, that's been passed on to him by his father, who was passed on from his father before him. And after that, we're going to have a very special discussion about language with his young son, who's with us this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, please make him welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tyrone Bell. I'm a descendant of the Yunnawal people, and it's my privilege this morning to welcome you to the country of the Yunnawal people. To begin with, I would like to let you know that traditional Aboriginal law requires any visitors to their country being made welcome. This customary tradition has been passed on by all our generations. This ritual forms a part of our belief system. Its purpose is for visitors to acknowledge whose country it is and then in turn being acknowledged as visitors and made welcome. This, this welcome custom has happened for thousands of years and we use it as protection for country against bad spirits. The country on which you stand today is that of the Yunnawal people. Being a Yunnawal traditional custodian, it gives me pleasure to invite you onto the country of my people. Dawanuna, Dawanunawal, Yulamundi, Kambara, Kindalan. In the language of my people means, this is Nunawal country. Welcome to our meeting place, enjoy. We call country the mother because as a mother cares for her children, so does the land cares for us. This is why Aboriginal people have such close ties with the land. On behalf of myself and my people, I send a warm welcome to everyone here. I'm proud to be Aboriginal and one of the traditional carers of this land. I want you to feel welcome while on our country. I would like to acknowledge those that have come here to this area for the first time and warmly welcome you. For those that have been here before, welcome back. And of course, for those that live here, please continue to enjoy and behave. <laughs> we want you to feel welcome while visiting Yunnawal country and ask that you respect the land as we have done and do. So in keeping with our Yunnawal tradition and the true spirit of friendship and reconciliation, treat everyone and everything with dignity and respect. And by doing so, it is our belief that your spirit will be harmonised with your stay on Yunnawal country. It is our belief our ancestors will then in turn bless your stay on our spiritual land. May the spirit of this land remain with you, to, with you today, tomorrow and always. Once again, on behalf of the Yunnawal people, I welcome you to our traditional country. Thank you. So I'll get my son Jai to um, come up. 
bit of a, um, he's taller than me now. <laughs> so, Jai's been actually learning language. Maybe you're a bit taller. I'll, I'll Sorry. So, Jai's been learning language for a couple of years now, and he's very passionate about it. I actually spoke yesterday about, um, someone asked about the most important time um, uh, doing language and all that, uh, whatever happened to you and all that. And uh, it was actually to hear Jai um, speak language for the first time. Um, it's all about the next generation and passing on our knowledge and culture, but also our language uh, to that next generation so they can speak it, but also um, share it with all you guys and that. So, of course, in that um, working on language for over six years, um, it all started with um, Jackie Troy um, in the front here, who's recording me. Um, Jackie actually like um, asked us to um, come and have a meeting to start to revitalise our language, and that was a really um, big thing for us. Um, of course, um, there was a lot of different um, Unawal um, people um, involved, so. Yeah, we uh, sat down with Jackie in that and uh, started to make it happen. Um, but it also, it felt that we were starting to find our soul again. And I think that's really in, important in that. Uh, for a long, long time in that, um, we walked around um, on country in that. Um, you know, like I said yesterday, um, going out doing cultural stuff, but never really had that soul, never had our, um, our direction in um, language. And that was really important to um, make that happen and partner up with um, IATSIS. So, you know, we do a lot of uh, great things with IATSIS and, you know, like working also with uh, Michael Walsh um, and I can't forget um, my good friend um, Doug Marnian, um, even though Doug's from um, WA, as he always tells everyone and all that. <laughs> um, yeah, we sort of um, adopted him here in um, Unawal country. Um, and, you know, he's given us a lot of um, uh, structure, uh, but also a lot of advice on that about um, uh, where to go uh, with our language in the future and all that. So, of course, in that, um, yeah, um, it's a journey that we're just starting, um, but, you know, um, we're in for the long haul to do things. So, did you want to get So, I might get your sister to read that, just a bit of brief history about us. We were sitting up last night trying to work out how many other things we've got to put in there, but we only got half an hour. Because <laughs> my late father actually said this to me, that last bit there, the meaning of um, Unimal, it's actually we the people. So with language, we actually um, put that into when we're saying we the people. Um, of course, we're meaning um, us as Unimal uh, people. Um, but people who weren't here yesterday, um, I actually said about why I say Unimal, because uh, Ngunnawal's the white man's interpretation. So we've actually gone back to the old ways of um, saying it. Um, some people still love to use Ngunnawal, but that's up to them, even in our community and that. Um, but I think, you know, like um, if we're learning language and doing it, it's got to be done right. Um, that's just my opinion. So, do you want to go to the next? Yeah. Um. So, 
We actually, um, don't put on your, sorry. Um, so a few years ago in that we um, taught uh, Malcolm Turnbull the acknowledgement to country. And like I said yesterday, that was uh, very, very um, big for us. And of course, and that uh, Jai was with me and also a cousin of mine, uh, Glenn Freeman. So we went up there and that and uh, didn't know what to expect in that uh, from a prime minister. Um, of course, went into his um, office and um, yeah, jumped on his big computer and that. Uh, uh, Jai actually asked him if he plays Pac-Man on there, but he said no. <laughs> but um, we actually uh, um, had a good discussion with um, Malcolm. Uh, he's a quick learner. Um, you know, some people might say a different thing about him, but um, no, like uh, he really um, embraced learning the language and it was the first time ever in Australian um, history that a then Prime Minister got up and, and spoke in um, not just Nunawal language but Aboriginal language. So the reason we also agreed to, to do this was to um, expose um, our Aboriginal and Indigenous languages right around Australia to say, well, you know, you should be um, helping um, not just us, but um, everyone around the country in that um, to you know, continue their language. So, of course, there's a few good um, stories that have um, come out of it. So, Malcolm was meant to share that with everyone, but um, he didn't. Um, so, that's why we're actually going around teaching the acknowledgement to country um, with all um, departments and that. Someone asked me yesterday about um, having just community workshops, but like when I get a few more community members involved in that, um, I think I'll um, open that up to the public then. But we'll, um, yeah, we'll keep on working on that. So um, I'll get Jai to um, put it on and then... No, it's not that one, son. That one is. The Prime Minister. Yungu Galanyin Nalawiri, Danayi Nunawul Dara, Wangara Linjin Yin, Maran Bolan Bugarabang. Today, Mr. Speaker, we are meeting together on Nunawul country and we acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders. I rise today to deliver the 2016 Closing the Gap Statement. And there was um, actually a funny story behind that because a couple of days later um, Malcolm uh, was crying in that and then I was sitting down trying to have uh, tea in that and uh, the phone was just going um, really mad. So I said, oh, well, I'd better pick it up and see who it is in that. And there was all the media um, right around, um, not just in Australia, right around the world. And someone said to me, well, why would you make the Prime Minister cry? <laughs> and I said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> And, you know, I just said, well, um, I don't know, like, and then one of his advisors uh, rang up and said uh, um, he actually read one of our Dreamtime stories and uh, started crying. And um, I think uh, um, he was interviewed uh, by Stan Grant Jr. Um, so, you know, um, that's one thing I can also, um, you know, put in the um, things that I've, I've achieved was make a Prime Minister cry. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I'll actually, um, I'll get Joy to actually like say the uh, acknowledgement. So, um, wanna take that then? So, yesterday was also like saying about, um, you know, the next generation and all that, and to have Joy here and that to, um, to, to do this is, uh, it's really big for me. Um, because it's also to do with wellbeing um, and, you know, like I go into a lot of schools um, and talk to um, Indigenous uh, students and that and a lot of them um, don't know where they come from. Um, so we're trying to change that. We're, we're giving them, giving them um, you know, like culture but also even if they don't come from here and that, um, if they want to uh, learn our language, we're happy to to do that. So, um, you know, we, we've got to look after um, our brothers and sisters collectively as well. So, what's next? So, there's a few words here and that. So, we sort of were trying to think about how we were going to um, do all this. So, I might get Joy just to go through them and that um, uh, one word at a time, or yep. do you want to just read them right through? It's up to you. I'll go through one word at a time. Okay. So, I guess we could just start with welcome. So, if if, if you guys just wanted to say it after me, and I'll we'll break break the words down first, then say it all in one big go. All right. So, you, ma, lun, di. Yum a lundi. Now just try saying that again, but just a tiny bit quicker. <laughs> Yum a lundi. You guys all just said welcome. Now the next one, uh, farewell. So, nol yun. Nol yun. Nol yun. Farewell. Next one's pretty easy, yes, and that is just ni. Alright, um, now we got no. So break this one up again. Um, gu, ra, gan. Guragan. Guragan. Alright, up to bad. Right, good, ba, good ba. Then on to good, so yed, un, yed un. All right, up to day, so un, gu, ru, un guru, un guru. All right. Now home, so this one is L, E, Mick. And that's it, Elimic. All right, now up to thank you. This word can also be said separately. So, John, Ye, 
Ma Ba John Yimaba. If you just want to say John as well, that just means just thanks. All right now the next one, crossing paths. So Da or Dari Mura. Dari Mura. All right, now, National Library of Australia. <laughs> and that so, took a while to do, didn't it? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, first word, Australia. And then, like at the end of Nunawal, just wall. So, Australia wall. The next word, in. D. G. So, in digi. And the last word, gu, ran. So, do you want to try saying that all together? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Australia wall, indigi, guran. National Library of Australia. Now, the last word, sorry day, this can also be said separately. So, ga, ya, Li. Gayali. Then for day, we've done this one. Un. Gu. Ru. So now say it as one word. Gayali. Unguru. Sorry day. Now we'll just go through those, all these just once more. So welcome. Yumalundi. Farewell, Nolyun. Um, yes, so Ni. Good again. No. Um, Goodbye. Which is bad. Yedun. Good. Um, up to day again. Udunguru. Home, Elamik. Thank you. So, John Yimaba. Crossing Paths, Dari Mura. National Library of Australia. So, Australia Wal. Indigi. Guran. Right, try that one again, except I'm just going to say the whole thing and then I'll get you to say it back to me. Australia Wal, Indigi, Guran. Yeah, done. <laughs> and then the last one, Gayali Unguru. So, Gayali Unguru. Very good. <laughs> so, we've actually um, also uh, a few years ago started working on a writing system and that. So, that was working a lot with um, Jackie, Michael, and uh, Doug Marnie. So um, that's virtually like up and running now. So once I get um, more people to have more community meetings and all that, uh, we'll look to actually um, put that out in the community and all that. So with these uh, workshops and that. So um, yeah, like it's um, like Ray said yesterday, it's all about being um, patient. Uh, but also, like, um, yeah, we also like to move things along at a bit of pace in that. So, um, 
yeah, hopefully we'll get there um, this year with um, uh, having the community workshops. So, did you want to go to the next one? So this is the other one what um, um, I developed with um, Doug. And it also, like, you know, um, listening to what Jackie did uh, with uh, down in Sydney with uh, Darawal. So I actually had a look at um, Jackie's work and um, I said, yeah, uh, like uh, I reckon I can um, put something together. So we were actually engaged by the Minerals Council of Australia. So they only gave us three weeks to put all this together. Um, so, you know, I sat down with Doug and that, and, uh, yeah, we uh, sorted, sorted it out. But um, um, it, it was a lot of long nights and all that um, to piece it all together. So a lot of people want the wording, but I'm at the final stages with um, the Australian Government, with Prime Minister and Cabinet, about the intellectual property rights. So hopefully in that, um, as soon as I get that email off them and that, I'll be able to share the wording in it. So I'll get Jai to um, play it and, um, yeah, see what you think. After um, doing that, I've had a few approaches from, um, you know, like uh, uh, rock stars, you could say, and all that. Um, <laughs> Want to do a few things. Um, so, yeah, there's 
one or two people and that where I might be able to um, interpret um, some stuff and all that and uh, yeah, do a song. So um, we wanted to really uh, do the anthem and all that to uh, put that out there as well. So um, next, yeah. So any questions? Where's the? Sorry, there have been objections to the first words of the of the Australian National Anthem, Australia's young and, being young and free, whereas you've got the oldest civilization um, in in the world here. Do you have do you have any concerns with with that? You always get concerns in that um, when you're um, doing stuff to uh, do with um, you know, like um, being colonised um, but I'll make it clear it's not like word for word so it's sort of our own um, but you'll understand that more when you actually um, see what we have uh, written um, and you know like I did uh, go away and have a think about it and say well do we need to do this and then I said yes because it's also about um, reconciliation and it's also like um working with uh, different people on that to, to say, you know, you, you can do anything when you start to put your mind to it to do with language. And that's one thing I've learnt in that, where people have said to me, no, you can't do that. And I'll say, OK, well, I'm going to go away and I'm going to do it. And, you know, like, um, you know, that's why I'm a mover and shaker in the business world on that, because I'm, there's no word as, um, you know, like, um, no. Um, I just go out there and do it. But, Are you writing a grammar for normal world as well? Yeah, that's what we've um, developed okay. with um, IATSIS. And uh, Jackie was... Um, it's an ergative uh, language? Sorry? Is it an ergative language? I can't remember. Is, oh. <laughs> does, the transitive, do the, does the object of the transitive sentence mark the same as the object of... Uh, sorry, the, uh, the subject of the intransitive sentence? But a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the Aboriginal languages have that... Um, oh. You know what I'm talking about? Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Is it is it ergative? Some are Aboriginal languages are, and some aren't. I'm just wondering. Oh, it, it's like ours is very basic, so mm -hmm. we've only got um, uh, three vowels. That's right. Yeah, I, U, and A. Okay. So, um, of course, when we put it out there and that, and um, um, show what we're doing and all that, you'll um, understand it. And, you know, like working with um, uh, linguists, I always say it's like, a, you know, having um, a mechanic. Um, so, you know, they fine-tune it and all that. Um, and But, you know, like, uh, um, Doug's a very good uh, mechanic. Um, okay. <laughs> so, you know, like, but also working with um, other uh, good mechanics like Jackie and also Michael. Okay. Yep. Hello, um, thank you both, that was fantastic. Um, something you said, Tyrone, about Malcolm was meant to share that with everyone, but he didn't. So was that about the acknowledgement, teaching acknowledgement to country, of country in Nunawak? Yeah, well, our idea in that was to, um, not just his staff and all that, but um, you know, start up at Parliament House and um, move it out. Um, but naturally that never happened. And you know, I can say I'm, I'm actually really disappointed in that that, that didn't happen. 
um, because, you know, again, it's all about uh, reconciliation. And, um, you know, I think he just uh, used it for political um, uh, agendas. I'm happy to talk to him if he's listened to this. <laughs> um, I've just got a question. I'm a primary school teacher and working with Indigenous students and non-Indigenous students. Um, I would love to do more. And um, how, do we, how do we connect with what you're doing? Um, and who's involved with the community discussions? Like, as in, can, is that something that I can get fellow teachers involved with and anything like that, you know? Yeah, well, it's, you know, like, um, it's hard sometimes in that, like, with the educa education side of things um, because, you know, like, um, we deal with federal government but also to do with um, the ACT government and we're slowly starting to teach um, the people in charge of education about language. So, you know, they keep on saying, oh, you know, well, um, we're looking at it, blah, blah, blah. But if anyone lives, like, here in the ACT, they know how long the ACT government takes to do stuff. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that as a bad thing and all that, but uh, um, I'm actually talking to the right people now where um, things might start to get moved along. So... I always love help. Yeah, um, but how? What's, what's the well, that's why we'll have to sit down and uh, go over it. Um, and, you know, like uh, um, Jackie Troy here said that um, she's got her sisters um, in any way. Um, but also we've got IATSIS with uh, Doug and um, I'll probably add Michael too. So. Uh, Tyrone, we've probably got time for one more, I think, yep. down the front here. <laughs> well, I, uh, thanks to you both for that. It's great. I'm one of the mechanics. Uh, and I, I guess uh, hearing hearing your presentation and also hearing uh, what you taught Malcolm Turnbull to do, uh, one of the questions we face if, if we have to do not a just an acknowledgement uh, to country in a meeting where it's not practical to get a welcome to country, uh, is do we feel at ease making? an acknowledgement of country in Ngunnawal. That is, we don't want to use the language impudently or, or without feeling we have the, the right to do so as a non-Aboriginal person. So I just wanted to raise that with you and other people here because it's, you know, we don't want to step over boundaries where we shouldn't be stepping, but we do want to um, show all respect we can. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's about all of us. It's not just not about... Um us learning our own language and all that. It, it's about um, getting the wider community involved. So everyone learns um, language around Canberra and regions, but also like um, right around Australia and all that, where people engage with Aboriginal communities um, to learn language. And also, you know, it uh, breaks down a lot of barriers in that too. Um, and, you know, people go, oh, I didn't know Aboriginal people were like that. Um, because, you know, like, um, uh, as uh, Kim Scott said yesterday, and that there's, you know, I saw a few people out there and all that, what, you know, they'll say um, there's no, there's only a, one Australian language and that's it. Um, and, you know, that's fine. If they want to believe that, they can. But there's a big shift probably in the last five years in that where a lot of people are coming to us to learn about culture, but also to, to learn about language. And 
there was uh, someone in the media um, who said to Malcolm Turnbull and that, that, why are you learning a dead language? Um, so, you know, like, that's why I like to, um, you know, keep that in the back of my mind so we can work together and then everyone learn language except for that person and then we'll go up and, um, yeah, see what he has to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, all good. So, if you have any other questions and all that, um, yeah, just come and see us at morning too. Thank you. <laughs> Jan Yimabar, thank you for that. And I know that I really appreciate it, Tyrone, and, and also Jai. And I'm not sure about you, but it fills my heart with great joy to hear someone so young speaking their language. And it makes me feel as though the future, at least for Nunawal, is in safe hands. And uh, so thank you very much for that. Ladies and gentlemen, another round of applause, please. And, and the point you made in that last question, I think we'll pick up that later in the afternoon in our session about why Indigenous languages matter as well, because I think it's a really uh, interesting discussion to have, so I'll be keen to have that one uh, a little later on. But to take us up to morning tea now, uh, we've got our next session this morning, which is called Replacing Language in Place, uh, which looks at some of the questions around what happens for places that had names that were given to them upon colonisation or shortly after when we start to have this discussion about repatriating names and bringing that language from whatever country that is back into the discussion. And this, this morning we've got a cracking panel. Uh, let me introduce them for you. Uh, first is Professor Rowinia Higgins, who was appointed Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Maori Tumu Ahurei, which I understand, if I'm getting the, uh, the correlation correct, is managing chaos that's swirling around you for that term. So uh, I feel as though that might be the story of my life some of the time. But to appoint a Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Wellington's Victoria University in 2016, who's been leading the charge in New Zealand around language and how to maintain that and, and what that means. Ladies and gentlemen, please make the Professor welcome. Anya Lane Lomas is a proud Wiradjuri woman originally from southwest New South Wales who grew up listening to the stories and her language from her elders at a time in Australia when, well, they were punished for doing just that. Uh, her nephew, a mentor and very good friend of mine, Stan, has been mentioned before and has written and spoken about this a lot, as uh, has Annie uh, Lane's entire family. Ladies and gentlemen, please make her welcome. And since 1972, Michael Walsh has conducted field work of Indigenous language and cultures across the top end, but focusing particularly uh, in on the Darwin Daly region, just to the south and to the slightly uh, to the west of Darwin, where uh, there is still incredible connection to culture, like there is across very many parts of the Northern Territory. Uh, he, this has uh, compromised a mixture of academic endeavours as well of, as consultancies since back in 19. 79, a time when Australia wasn't even prepared to have these conversations. Uh, what a difference those decades have made in the work of you and others. Please make him welcome.
And last but not least, uh, our esteemed chair for this discussion this morning. Uh, you've heard her mention this morning, Professor Jacqueline uh, Troy is, is a Narugu woman from the snowy mountains of New South Wales, who's the Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at the University of Sydney. And her research and academic interest focus on language, particularly contact languages, and how we protect and preserve those uh, that, as we heard earlier, are often dubbed uh, languages that are dead. What happens when we get to that point? Ladies and gentlemen, our chair this morning, Professor Jacqueline Troy. Jan, you remember? It's great. We're all speaking Ngunnawal. Fabulous. So, um, great way to start this day. Um, yeah, it's clearly no dead languages in this room, which is good to hear. And I think um, that's one of the things that Michael, in talking to you about what you would like to focus on today, you were maybe, if you don't mind, we might start with Michael giving us. Um, a few of the reasons why we shouldn't be using language like that and why all sorts of databases out there online like Ethnologue and Glottologue and all the authorities um, that say that our language is a dead, mine's dead. I don't feel so dead and <laughs> I may not be a fluent speaker of Narugu but I am Yamachi and I will speak my language again. I'm inspired by my brother here who I've known since we were almost small children together in ATSIC. So um, I think that there's a great future for all the Indigenous languages of the world because people like everybody in this room care. And that's all it takes, really. And um, let's all be multilingual. So, Michael, you want to tell us why there's no such thing as extinct languages in Australia? <laughs> I'll try. I'll just chuck that to you now. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so, Jackie mentioned ethnologue. Uh, this is a sort of catalogue of the world's uh, roughly 7,000 languages, and so each language gets a profile. Uh, for Ngunnawal, uh, it uh, declares that it's extinct. Now, uh, we've just heard from Jai and Tyrone, they don't look extinct to me. Um, <laughs> and I might say just a bit about the Ngunnawal uh, issue. Jackie, um, if you like, founded or in invited Ngunnawal people to IATSIS uh, in September 2013 uh, to talk about the possibility of language revitalisation. Not to say we have to do it, but we're the mechanics, we can assist and we've got a, uh, a major resource in IATSIS to assist with these things. Um, two and a half years later from that standing start, uh, as we've heard, Malcolm Turnbull gave the first speech for a Prime Minister in an Aboriginal language. In the clip that um, Tyrone was showing, just over his left shoulder was an Aboriginal man, Ken Wyatt, whose view on that um, is interesting because he's not from, he's from Western Australia, I believe, but uh, as an Aboriginal man, his reaction was that Malcolm Turnbull Turnbull's gesture of addressing Parliament in the Ngunnawal language uh, signifies a different approach to Indigenous affairs that puts the speech on par with Paul Keating's Redfern speech and Kevin Rudd's apology uh, to the stolen generations. So this is an Aboriginal man and that's the impact it has on him. If you were looking closely, you'd see that Malcolm Turnbull was reading from, from some notes. He'd been given a, an excellent tutorial. Uh, on the Ngunnawal language and soaked it up pretty fast. Uh, but 
uh, Australia Day 2017, um, he gave the same speech again, an acknowledgement to country on the uh, banks of Lake Burley Griffin here in Canberra, and there were no notes that I could see. He just absorbed it and spoke it um, by heart, if not from the heart. And he kept on giving the same speech a number of times since. So getting back to this question of extinction, uh, I've been asked to do the Australian revision of the Routledge Encyclopedia of Endangered Languages. And the general editor for this asked me to list the Australian languages that are extinct. <laughs> um, I pointed out I've got a problem with this, mate. Uh, Aboriginal people object to the term extinct, and so do I. Uh, so I went back to the ethnologue uh, definition of what's extinct. There are two criteria. The first is there's no one that speaks this language anymore. And sadly, it's true that there are some Australian languages that fit that criterion. But the second criterion is roughly uh, there's no one who gains their identity from that language. And at that point, I argued with the general editor, I think there are no Australian languages that are extinct because even if no one speaks them, uh, there are certainly going to be people who gain their identity from it. Uh, another supposedly extinct language is uh, Dungutty from the north coast of New South Wales. Um, it says it's extinct and uh, a distinguished academic from ANU, Stephen Worm, said in 2007 that it had been extinct for two decades at that point. Not so long ago, uh, Craig Ritchie, who's the CEO of IATSIS, uh, was in, uh, uh, sorry, in um, uh, New York uh, addressing the General Assembly Chamber uh, as part of the launch uh, from the UN of the International Year of Indigenous Languages. Craig Ritchie gave a speech in Dungati, a supposedly extinct language. He also did the same thing at the Paris um, launch uh, through UNESCO of the International Year of Indigenous Languages. Another good news story uh, relates to uh, the um, uh, language we heard about yesterday uh, from, uh, from um, Sorry, I'm just losing my place here. Uh, okay. From Noongar. Uh, so, Professor Kim Scott mentioned Clint Bracknell a number of times. Um, and Clint's uh, wife now, uh, Kylie Farmer, is part of a, um, is a, a professional actor. One of the things she uh, did in 20, uh, 2017, it must be, was appear on Q&A on the ABC delivering some um, Shakespearean sonnets that have been translated into Noongar. Now, when I mention this to some people, they're amazed that a supposedly extinct language uh, could be sufficient to capture uh, the um, words of the bard. But um, I was congratulating Kylie about two years ago um, when we were bound for Honolulu for an international conference and sort of said, way to go, mate. Uh, you did a great job on uh, Q&A. 
And she sort of sighed and said, yeah, but now the next task is to translate Macbeth. (laughs) (laughs) Not long after, um, they had a child, a young son, and I figured, right, well, Macbeth has gone out the window, except Clint uh, gave me an update saying she's over in Perth doing rehearsals for Macbeth. (laughs) So those are some of the instances of languages that are supposedly down the drain that are now coming back to life, if you like. Another last one that I mentioned is Yawaru from the Broome area. Um, a colleague or a student colleague of Jackie's, um, Kome Hosokawa, uh, did his PhD on the Yawaru language, um, completing it in 1991 at that mm-hmm. point, saying the language has just a couple of aged speakers and is sort of on the way out. Mm-hmm. As of now, uh, the Yawaru have uh, created a language centre and their goal is to have 20 fluent speakers by 2021 and they're well on target Mm -hmm. to uh, complete that task. So those are just a couple of instances of supposedly extinct or near extinct languages that are going gangbusters. Um, Frankly, over the 20 years or so that I've been in language revival, what's happened has been beyond my wildest expectations. Mm. So... I can talk at great length, but no, I'll probably get the hook. So um, <laughs> that's it for me. That's right. It's pretty. It's pretty wild having to um, manage the man who actually trained me <laughs> and um, inspired me as a young scholar at Sydney University, and also made me feel um, that um, our languages and our heritage are not something that <laughs> uh, was being taught to me um, in other courses I was doing, particularly anthropology where it was all about us being sort of Stone Age primitive people and there was certainly no place in that dialogue for people like myself who was um, aiming to do a... I just thought, right, I'm going to be um, an academic. Um, I'm a very clever Aboriginal person. <laughs> I'm going to be an academic in this institution. But there wasn't really any place for that. So I think that another marvellous thing about all these dialogues about us and where we're heading with reviving our languages, we're doing this ourselves. Um, we certainly need the help of mechanics. Um, I am one of those mechanics too. I'm delighted that I did my PhD in linguistics. It was the hardest thing I ever did, and, uh, but I never regret doing it. And I look forward to lots more Aboriginal people becoming leading academics in linguistics, not only in Australia, but all around the world. So um, w- on that sweet note, let's go to one of the, the great the great linguistic mechanic families <laughs> of Australia, and that would be the Grant family. Um, so, Auntie Elaine, I just um, my hats off to you forever for the work that your community and particularly your brother um, has done in um, reviving Wiradjuri, um, <laughs> sort of catching it before it went over the the ledge um, into well, got being to his quite. Stage. Quite sleepy, yeah. <laughs> so um, we have one of our national treasures here, um, and between you and your the rest of your family, with uh, one of the great languages of New South Wales, has inspired mm. I think a lot of the rest of us to get our languages going again. So, what's that story? <laughs> oh, I haven't got all day, but um, before I start, I wouldn't do it like at least acknowledge do an acknowledgement. Uh, you and Nadi Elaine Lomas, Galari Wiradjuri, Dirimadilinya Walang Wiradjuri Yinna Griffith Dee, 
my Nunurumbang is Griffith. My, my place of residence now is on Nunurumbang country here in Canberra. Nadiwinangana Nindamara Nunurumbang Mutigan Balandadulumbul Wirumbira Warumbira Maraninina Dina today. I want to say thank you to the Nunurumbang people for allowing us to be on your land today, but we pay our respects and honour to you and for allowing us to speak my language on your country. Annie Agnes Shea gave us Wiradjuri people that um, great honour of being able to speak on, on the Nunawal lands and we are forever grateful because um, I get to, to teach our Wiradjuri people uh, our Wiradjuri language on your country and we are forever grateful for that. Now, my story, I, I grew up in a little place, a big place called Griffith in New South Wales. But we also grew up, let me say this from the outset firstly, is that Wiradjuri language was not dead. Wiradjuri language was not lost. Wiradjuri language was a very, very much alive in our communities. But what was lost, though, was the ability for our Wiradjuri elders to pass down and to speak Wiradjuri in public. That was lost. What was lost also was the ability for our elders to, to uh, pass and teach Wiradjuri, practice culture, practice language. That was lost. That was in public. What was lost also was the ability for them to teach me as a young little Wiradjuri Gudda, Yinna, running around on Three Ways Bridge in Griffith, in, on Frog's Hollow, where Grandfather Johnson was <laughs> teaching us and, and, and learning, giving us that learning uh, in Wiradjuri. But he could only do that when he was safely in a place where, where he wasn't going to be ostracised or any reprisal happening. Um, my brother Stan tells me the story that when he was a young little Buddha running around uh, in the park in Griffith, um, the custom was that our, our old people, our elders, used to work the fields in Griffith through the, uh, picking fruits and vegetables for the Italian families. And the, come Saturdays was the day they'd go and they'd cash their checks and they'd do their shopping and the women would go do that and the men would stay in the park looking after the kids. So this particular day, Grandfather saw Nanny coming across the, the, the road with all the women and their groceries, he called the kids, Danyana, 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 come, come, come here. And kids as kids, dude, <laughs> I'm just going to keep playing. And he says, Danyana. <laughs> and as he said that, an uh, off-duty police officer walks past and he heard him thinking that he was swearing to them kids mm. and he arrested him and put him in jail. I think he stayed in jail a couple of nights. That was grandfather forgetting his place and forgetting that he, was a, he, he could speak to his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and forgetting that he was not allowed to do that in public. But we are so grateful that over the years, my two brothers, Pastor Cecil Grant, who's, who's now passed away, and my brother Stan Grant Sr., and my sister Flo, Florence Grant, were had that fire in their belly of wanting to do grandfather um, 
his honour and, and justice by getting that language out. And Stan and, and Cecil particularly wanted to learn and teach others and learn to say it properly, speak the language properly, not just, in other words, the slang bits. Grandfather was a traditional Wiradjuri man. He was initiated, he was a lawgiver, he was a clever man. And when he taught the young men, he taught them from his knowledge, from his power and his uh, handing down of his culture. So what he'd learnt, what Stan and Cecil had learnt, was true, pure Wiradjuri. And so he wanted to continue speaking that and, and he knew that there were suppressions. Now, our language was suppressed. It wasn't taken from us, it was suppressed. We weren't allowed to speak it. And, and these were the things that, that our people have had to um, walk around. The demeanour showed that they were down. You look at the, the eyes and you see the lights in their eyes have gone out because they had lost their dulumbang, <coughs> excuse me, their dulumbang, their spirit. Their gene, their heart wasn't in it anymore because their dulumbang was dead. It means their spirit wasn't there anymore. Until they all got together in, in, in private, when they gathered around the campfire, they'd have all their little musical instruments. Little old Mrs. Wyman would have her little squeeze box, that little hexagonal squeeze box, and the others would bring their little instruments, a big tea chest with a piece of string, a big piece of rope and stick to make their double bass, and they would sing language around the campfire. I grew up with that. I am 69. I remember very clearly the language that our people spoke. Now, I was brought up in a strong Christian family and we went across every little Koori church in Wiradjuri country, down to Wattle Hill at Leeton, Sandhills in Narandra, Narambi at Cowra, the Muri and the um, Willow Bend in Condo, the Dubbo and Gilgandra. We all went because we, we all wanted to have that fellowship but also to speak language privately, secretly. What, <coughs> excuse me, what the, the one that had the most impact on my life was in Condoblin because that's where all, I believe, the language speakers were. There were these two beautiful old women and when I see the language and I speak the language, their faces come before me. Auntie Emmy Melrose and Auntie, um, her sister, Auntie Sabina, they called her sub Melrose. And Jack, Uncle Jack has um, Bassett, um, grandfather's brother, Uncle Johnny Johnson, Mulbon Johnson. All of these people spoke the Wiradjuri language. And when I, when I talk about Wiradjuri language, I think of this jar of honey. Take off the top. When you hear these two old women speak, you take off that jar and you pour and you watch the fluency of that honey pouring out, the thickness of that honey, <coughs> the richness of that honey, and you look at the bowl in which, which it's um, pouring into and it watch it consume that bowl. That's what language does to me. The reclaiming of the Wiradjuri language is something that just consumes me as a Wiradjuri yinna from... Griffith, Nurambang Griffith. And the reason we have this is because my brother Stan Grant and Dr John Rudder and my brother Cecil Grant and the Wiradjuri Council of Elders who gave the imprimatur for this to be written 
he went, Stan and John and Cecil and Flo did a lot of work. This is many years of work. They went to every corner of Wiradjuri country to get um, the words, to speak to elders who still spoke the language, to, to speak to ministers who'd written down. Florence was, was the one who was given the 3,000 the 3, words um, of Dr. Uh, Reverend Gunther. He had 3,000 Wiradjuri words written down and he, somehow that got into the hands of my sister who immediately when she got them, looked at them, put them in the box and went off overseas for a year or two. <laughs> As you do, Jackie. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so in the meantime, my two brothers are there like trying to uh, remember grandfather's words and remember those other words that were written down. So they, they made this little writ, uh, list. Then when Flo come back, she just casually handed this 3,000-word list to my brother Cecil, who almost said, how long have you had this? <laughs> Where's this been? You know, and Florence like, oh, I'll put it in my box, and then I went overseas. And then, oh, you know, so they could have been further advanced, but that doesn't really matter because the rest is history. Now, today, um, Cecil and Flo sat down with, well, recently... Um, we started the work with Charles Sturt University. And Cecil and Flo sat down with Ross Chambers, who was then the Vice-Chancellor, and talked with them about the possibility of this language, this gift that we've been given, to use this gift to teach others, other Wiradjuri people, about speaking language. And Ross Chambers had obviously been so um, affected by it that he then went to his mob, his people, at the university and spoke about the starting of this Wiradjuri Language Cultural and Heritage Program and nation building. Um, the, the current Vice-Chancellor, um, Professor and Andy Van, who has been there since the first language class had happened, he sent me a note to say that... Um, he said, I feel deeply privileged as Vice-Chancellor to have been at the head of the university at the time when the delivery of the program was initiated. <coughs> Excuse me. This program has enormous impact in community and seeing the sense of pride that it has grown, helped to grow amongst Wiradjuri people has been one of his career highlights. Now, coming from a Vice-Chancellor who's got a huge university and for him to focus on the work of a few Wiradjuri people who thought it would be fantastic to have this at university level. And I think at this point, might, might, I might be wrong, but we were the only university to have the Wiradjuri language or Wiradjuri or any language taught um, at that stage. One of the other quick things, Jackie, is, is that since this course has started, we've had 138 graduates and and I'm proudly one of them. I, I graduated with 13 others of my colleagues um, in December last year. So I now feel pride <laughs> that this language is in my hands and for me to deliver to my community and freely. And I'm doing that and I have two of my beautiful students here. I'm, I'm teaching Wiradjuri to the Gilbert family. There's seven of them this time and there's another seven in the win wings waiting and more after that because their grandmother had so much wanted, before she had departed this earth, she wanted her grandchildren to learn this language. 
and we're doing that. This is our third week this afternoon. It'll be our third week. And it is such a, a, an honour for me to be able to give my people their language back. And not just giving it back, but I know that this has enhanced their lives and what it will do will change communities. Um, am I able to talk about our vision now? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 please stop. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> now, 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 my vision for Wiradjuri language is that we at Charles Sturt University, and let me say hi to... They have, would you believe this, they're having a streaming party at Charles Sturt University today? Well. Say hello to, to my fellow uh, colleagues and, and my lecturers there who are gladly sitting around probably having raisin toast and coffee while I'm here sweating <laughs> it out. <laughs> so... Um, at Charles Sturt, we have this fantastic team. Lloyd Dolan, we call him the walking, the walking, um, you know, he has the knowledge, he, he knows all about history. He's that walking encyclopedia that you go to to ask. So, Captain Cook, um, you said he wasn't the captain? No, he was the lieutenant, he wasn't the captain. He was just the captain because that's what his sailors called him, aye aye captain, and everybody then took up that mantle, Captain Cook. And I know you've got a thing here, but I'm not going to go in into that today. <laughs> I think <laughs> we'll stay away. <coughs> Excuse me. And then uh, we've got this beautiful young woman who fluently... <coughs> excuse me. Who fluently can teach the language just like these two old Aboriginal women of my, my youth. Letitia Harris has got that ability to be able to go to you and pass on to you the language of our people, 50,000 years strong, walking in our ancestors' footsteps. What a privilege for me to sit under her tutelage. She has that ability to be the next Emmy Melrose, the next Sab Melrose, the next Radzri. Um, we talk about people being um, can put up there as being the top leaders in this country in speaking our language. And then, of course, we have young Debbie Evans, who's actually a Barkindji woman in Wiradjuri clothing. She actually lives in Wiradjuri country and works very much for our Wiradjuri people in the, at the university with the language. And Debbie's been responsible for getting students through, encouraging them to come through the course and, and encouraging while they're there. Then young, uh, another fellow called Larry, um, Yari. Yari, his name's Harry, but we call him Yari. Yari Lambshead, he's one of the quiet achievers. He's the one that walks around and assesses each student while, while the teaching's happening. And if he sees someone struggling, he sneaks in beside you and whispers in your ear what, explaining what Letitia's saying or explaining what Lloyd's saying. And the one that underpins all of that is Professor Sue Green Townsend. She pulls them together and she supports them. She's actually the conduit between the, the staff, the um, vice-chancellery and the students and the community. She, she involves, they all involve the elders so much that the elders feel such a strong part of this language program, reclaiming through the Wiradjuri Council of Elders but also through their own community um, commitments. My vision 
Okay, here comes I have a dream speech. <laughs> I have a dream. I have a dream that every man, woman, child, and I'll even say dog, because my little dog Lucy understood Baradri. <laughs> of course. She understood Baradri. I'd say, Dangan, she'd come for food. I'd say, We're in here, come for bed, sleep. <laughs> and I'd say, Wait, stop. You know, like that, stop. Shh, quiet. <laughs> so Lucy understood, and I'm sure that if every little puppy dog in Wiradjuri country, and she's a Wiradjuri dog, she was born in Wiradjuri country. So if, if we could, my dream is that every man, woman, child and beast learns Wiradjuri country in this lifetime. Learns Wiradjuri in their country, on their country, in their home, on their space. We want to get a little yellow bus, yours truly driving, <laughs> taking that across Wiradjuri to where the people are and not getting them to come to where Charles Sturt University is. Teaching Wiradjuri on their country, in their country, for their country. And understanding that people have families, but also this is a great opportunity to actually go and give, pass that fire stick, that language stick along throughout, have that burning brightly along Wiradjuri country so that people don't have to leave their nests, their homes, their country to learn to speak and to learn and, and take back what was um, suppressed from them years ago. My understanding for, for, for the Charles Sturt University is also they want to have their own language centre. This is the dream of all of us, is that we, in Wiradjuri country we have our own language centre that we can say our centre of excellence is here. Wiradjuri language is not dead. Wiradjuri language is not lost. Wiradjuri language is, is no longer suppressed. Suppressing order gone. We are now alive and well and living in Wiradjuri country. Mandangu. Uh, thank you. Mm. All right. Well, I have a dream that your dream is realised. And I look forward to the day when all of us are multilingual again and speaking each other's languages. And of course, the wonderful thing is that if you learn one Australian language, um, then it becomes easy to learn more of them. Jackie, um, there's just one more point I forgot. If I can just say this. <laughs> Please do. My, my third or fourth dream, which could become the top, is that... You know how we fill out the census forms and it says language speak, spoken at home? I want to see Wiradjuri written on all of those forms in Wiradjuri country. I want to see Wiradjuri language being uh, called one number one speaking language instead of English as our first language. Mm. Wiradjuri is our first language. Obviously, we still have to speak English. That's okay. Because in order for us to get things done and to work together, we need, in the spirit of reconciliation, we need to have that, the bilingual. But I also agree with you that... Um, my grandfather spoke seven different languages because mm. they had common grounds and they used to come and they used to mm. speak to each other to cross, to get that welcome to country to cross their lands. And, and grandfather spoke seven different languages. And we don't use the word lingo, that is a no-no because lingo is slang. Language is what we use because that is the pure way of saying who we are. Wiradjuri niang, Wiradjuri people. 
Wiradjuri, uh, when they say Wiray Wiradjuri, Niang uh, means no language, and we say Wiray, uh, Maine, no people. But we now have this wonderful resource. There's a new book out now, by the way. Wiradjuri language, called the New Wiradjuri Language Book. So there you go, everyone. Go out and buy it. <laughs> so now we're going to, um, as we do in Australia, often gaze longingly across the ditch. <laughs> uh, where um, we have in our presence today, fabulous, um, the Commissioner for Maori Language. When are we going to have this in Australia? You know, happily volunteer. No, but the first female commissioner, how fabulous. Um, Maori, yes. Maori <laughs> uh, is, of course, not just um, one language. Um, it's many language. There are many Maori languages in New Zealand. Um, it's a wicked trick, isn't it, to to, I mean, really get this language um, going in the way that Māori is now. Um, legislation has helped and you've had a hell of a lot to do with that. Um, and also to do with Māori universities where Māori is the medium for instruction and people can do their PhDs in Māori. Um, I look forward to the day in Australia where you can pick out of our 407 and rising in number of languages and do a PhD in one or more of our languages. So please, Ravinia, can you tell us what's the wicked trick? Kia ora koutou katoa, e te whakamininga. Ko tātou mai nei i tēnei ahiahi, ka nui aku mihi ki a koutou. Ki a Tyrone, rau ko tāna tamaiti, i homai hei taonga mō tātou katoa tō rātou reo, tō rāua reo. Te reo o tēnei whenua. Ka mihi ki a koe e koe, ko rua tahi, aku hoa i tēnei ata. It's a real privilege to be here and also acknowledge this land and the peoples in my own language. As I was sitting yesterday thinking about, oh, what can I talk about? Because a bit like Michael and our auntie over here, how long is a piece of string, really, <laughs> when it comes to this? Because it's a long game, right? So I was thinking about different kinds of things that connect us and thinking about Ray's um, conversation yesterday around connection and relationships being very key to um, building trust, but also that ability to think about language revitalization. So if I thought about um, what connects us, you know, um, in our worldview, I think about Maui, and Maui is um, uh, a tipua, or as uh, ethnographers like to call a demigod, but Maui was a mischief. Maui liked to explore and did great adventures, and on the South Island, which was his canoe, he fished up the North Island, which is why it kind of looks like a fish. And so in our language, it's a fish. Uh, I come from the head of the fish in Wellington, um, and so Maui is also found throughout Polynesia uh, as a god, as a demigod, and all sorts, not just on the Moana film, um, <laughs> as a Dwayne Johnson rendition of it, <laughs> but also Australia for us, we consider it Te Papaka Nui a Maui, which means the giant crab of Maui. So next to the fish is this big crab, and if you think around the Northern Territory being part of the pincers and things like that. So in our worldview, Maui is a great connector but Maui's also a champion. He goes out and he tries and defeats everything, including uh, immortality. That's the only place he fails. Mm -hmm. But I kind of see 
us as language champions like Maui. We have to take some risks. We have to push against the tide in order to ensure that our languages are living languages. If I think about the preserving um, the indigenous languages of the Pacific, I see institutions like this as being uh, significant um, places for helping us do that. So if that was the objective in New Zealand, I would say that we have preserved our language. As Paul said yesterday, we have the largest corpus of Māori language materials in our libraries, um, but we just don't use them. So for me, I kind of think of the analogy of a pickle. So if you pickle something, it's, you pickle it so it can last a long time, and you preserve it. And if I think about the ingredients, basic ingredients of the pickle, and thinking about language revitalization, you know, the tears that represent, is represented in the salt, uh, the water, which of course comes from our lands and gives life to us as peoples. The pepper and the herbs locally uh, come from our earth. Um, the sugar is from that passion by not only our own people, but also curators and ethnographers long ago to kind of put that together. And the vinegar is kind of like that new kind of technology that brings them together and kind of makes this pickling agent. So one of the things for me, so we have a, in New Zealand we describe libraries as pātakakai, or our food storehouses. So we've got all these pickles in there, in many ways. But like pickles, uh, they're kind of condiments. They kind of, you know, enhance your meal. They're not the meal itself. So how do you change our language from being the relish to being relished by our people in the main part of our dietary requirements? So. Nobody wants to always eat vinegar. I personally love vinegar, so <laughs> I could probably sit there and just eat a whole jar of pickles, but I'm not everybody. <laughs> One of the other things that people have talked about around reconciliation, um, and the stories here uh, are clearly different from at home, and I can see why Jackie uh, makes mention of staring across at us and kind of thinking, yeah. <laughs> Part of it is our Maui kind of spirit, just like, yeah, we're ready to just always go, yeah. Give it a go try another way around. Um, and for us, the legislation in 1987 is a result of our Treaty of Waitangi claim um, for the language. So in 1985, the tribunal heard the claim that under Article 2 of the Treaty of Waitangi, uh, the language is a taonga, or uh, a treasure. Now, um, a lot of the impetus behind the claim and the initiatives were by the people. They were not by the state, they were by the people mobilising themselves and creating movements. So the Language Nest movement, is a, it started as a movement. The Cuisinier Rod, Te Atarangi, um, adult teaching programme was a movement. It started in our communities, started at the Flax Roots, uh, and they gained momentum. So they mushroomed quite quickly across the country. And as a result, the government came in and decided that they should regulate it a little bit, which I think they find is, let's add some policy and some funding and dangle this kind of approach to you that, um, that we start to control the movement. So the movement moves from a movement of the people to an institution. And the legislation uh, in 1987 is essentially you get Te Reo Māori becomes an official language, the first legal official language in New Zealand. Uh, you create the creation of the Māori Language Commission, uh, Māori Language Commission, 
and the Commission can give out licences for interpretation. Um, and you can also speak some Māori language in the court. That was about it. So for the first few years of the Commission, uh, much like Cook and Banks and Parkinson, we did lots of wordless, lots and lots and lots of wordless. The Commission focused on that. Uh, but the Commission had no teeth. So if somebody wasn't speaking the language or they weren't uh, abiding by the legislation, the Commission really had no grounds to be able to say, actually, that's wrong. We could say it, but that didn't give you any actual teeth. So it was like a toothless beast. Mm. 30 years later, um, uh, and some very up and down movements in uh, New Zealand with respect to the language, because we get immersion schools, we get universities, we get tertiary providers. Um, but what we found is the policy makers were marginalising those who've had a focus on language and decided to put a value judgement on them that was lesser than uh, the mainstream. So for example, a kohanga reo or a language nest teacher uh, their salary is half that of a early childhood provider. Mm. And so more recently the Kohanga Reo Movement Trust took um, their claim to the Waitangi Tribunal for marginalisation in their policies. Now according to the Ministry of Education, they had decided, they had put a value judgement on the qualifications that the Kohanga Reo had produced versus what mm. other tertiary providers do and therefore waiting it meant you get less resourcing. So absolute, obvious uh, marginalisation of our people. And this is right across the board. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, so one of my research areas is language planning and policy. I love it, it's, like, it's my jam. <laughs> I talk about it all day, actually. <laughs> but had the opportunity and the privilege to chair an independent advisory group on the legislation. We had a change uh, in the previous government, the Māori Party were keen to give some more teeth to the legislation, um, and they were a little bit nervous, so they got people like myself to review it. We reviewed it, we went around the country and talked to our people, and the clear messaging we got was give our people the ability to become the movement again and focus on our family. So we use the analogy of our traditional meeting house, which has got a very defined apex um, on the outside, but it's got a very unique kind of um, architecture. That On the left-hand side, when you're facing the house, it's the tiny side, and it's called the tiny side, and that's where the um, local people sleep. And on the other side of the house, opposite, is the large side of the house. And that's for the visitors, where you give them more. It's physically in that way. So we use the house's analogy of micro and macro language planning. So we uh, recommended that a new entity be established, which represented tribes and uh, language initiatives that look after the micro side of the house. And their focus is on which means return the language to the breast of the mother, so it becomes their mother tongue again. Mm -hmm. So that's their vision. On the other side of the house, on the macro side, is all the government agencies. And then the government agencies are expected to make up the other side of the house and the posts on the house. And that idea of being able to <coughs> face each other 
and have the hard conversations around language revitalization. And what is the role of the Crown? How does the state support and create conditions that allow our families to feel flourish in society with the language? So it's a clear demarcation. The Māori Language Commission now is in charge of coordinating the Crown strategy. The Crown strategy is called Kia mā hora hora te reo, let the language be heard everywhere. Um, and using that macro approach around broadcasting and education, ensuring that the language is visible, audible, um, and actively used. So the focus for us is no more about pickle. The focus now is around living language and how do we get the next generation to uh, use. So I was looking at Jai today and, uh, and he reminds me of the generations that we have at home who started in Kohanga Reo. Mm. So they are our new first language speakers. Mm-hmm. So we had lots of second language speakers. I'm the first commissioner to be a second language speaker. All my predecessors, all seven of them, were elderly statesmen who were all native language speakers. Mm-hmm. And part of the struggle for them is they don't understand what loss means. Mm-hmm. So when you don't know, when you don't know your own, when you don't know what it's like to not have your language, it's really a hard conceptually for them to see that until they see their children and their grandchildren. So I looked at Jai today and I was like, got another Maui in the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because language revitalization is a very long game, right? That's why we pickle, because it takes a long time. You know, it takes one generation to lose the language and three generations to restore. So this is not a fast game. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so how do we reconceptualize supporting our families and our Moombas and our elders to continue to feed language to the next generation? And how do we as big institutions, like libraries, like universities, uh, like all the mechanics that support, how do we provide conditions that enables our people to be able to use the language anywhere right across our countries? Mm. Kia ora. Relishing that. <laughs> so, um, yes, look, I think um, where Australia really lags is in this, uh, in, the, in the, the reality that we just don't have language policy for any languages. Um, there have been attempts, there have been wonderful attempts, um, but now in New South Wales there is legislation um, to protect New South Wales languages. That's the beginning. So when I say there isn't any, there, there is the beginning of it. And once again, um, there's been quite a big Wiradjuri input to that. And also the Dangari, so all these people who are meant to be non-existent. Um, uh, it's a wonderful thing to see that Australia is beginning to embrace the idea that um, we can actually uh, coordinate some kind of effort here in this country in the way that you have in New Zealand. And it's clearly, it's, it is still a long game. Um, we have our great warriors like and heroes like Maui. Um, they're all over our country, and as you say, Young Jai is one of them. I'd like to think that my Lara, who was here yesterday, oh, yeah. will be another one. And have um, one over here. We have yeah. this more of them over here. We've got them all over this room, and, and the mothers and fathers of them. So um, I think it's great, and it's nice to think that we can, from New Zealand, you can chuck a hand back and give us inspiration. Our Native Title Act 
indeed was inspired in many ways by the legislation in New Zealand um, that came out of a recognition of your sovereign rights. So I live for the day when we are recognised as the sovereign peoples of this country, but I may not live through that recognition. But so look, thank you to the three panellists. We have got a, a little bit of time. <laughs> Um, uh, just a few questions. Exactly, um, before you start, I, yeah. I should have said something at the beginning. Mm. Um, it is a remiss of me to uh, not give you the apologies of my brother, Stan Grant Senior, who, who um, should be here today, but he's unwell, so he's asked little sister, who says, who can't <laughs> say no, <laughs> to come and sit in for him. So he sends his deepest apologies and also um, his gratefulness that we're all interested mm. in, in reclaiming and what happens with our languages. Mm. Oh, he's certainly Thank present you. here. So Sorry? He's certainly present oh, here. Oh, most definitely. So he's probably watching. I'm sure he is. Hi, Uncle Stan. Okay, so questions, comments? Sorry, I should say wait for the mic, please. Sorry. Um, at the moment, as I understand it, um, there's... I think it's Australia-wide, but it's definitely in the ACT. Students have to learn from year three, so they're about nine, ten years old, up through high school, they have to have a second language. Mm -hmm. And now our school is doing French, which is lovely, but <laughs> I wonder if this is a way of sneaking it in, like, because language teachers of any language are really hard to come by. It's quite a good salary, unlike this, this that terrible thing in New Zealand where is a disparity in the... So, I don't know whether that's worth giving it a go, Ch training teachers with the language and then popping them in schools and going under the radar, maybe. Look, I'd, I'd like to comment on that. One of the things I'd say is that um, we've had um, no university in Australia yet take up a full degree course in Australian languages. How bizarre. I tried at Sydney University. Uh, Michael and I designed the Australian Curriculum for Languages Framework for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Languages. Um, I said, oh, look, you know, easy, let's have a, a degree course in Australian languages. So well, we have a start, Charles Sturt University. Yes, Charles Sturt has definitely started, and, um, but the problem is we just don't have, you can't go and do it like you would with French, be Bachelor of Arts French, um, teacher training, become a teacher. We've got the teacher training, and in fact, we've got some wonderful Indigenous Australian teachers, but we just don't have that kind of taking on board in the way that in New Zealand you have. You can, could you imagine in New Zealand not being able to do a degree in Māori mm. anything? Mm. Um, so this is something this country needs to take on board. So I think that's a very good point. Um, further comments? Or? Um, in New South Wales, uh, Wiradjuri language was um, first taught in, in parks and forbes. Um, as part of their, their school curriculum. Um, th and then there are other schools throughout New South Wales that are taking that on board as well. So um, and I think New South Wales is pretty well um, moving toward wanting to um, put that across, uh, the curriculum across the state as, as a key way of, of teaching language and making language uh, strongly uh, supporting language in, in the schools, teaching children from on the way up. Um, I, I've, I've actually gone through a few schools myself and, and sang in language, because that's the way you learn, by singing the language. Once you sing it, you can learn how to say it. 
if you look at the word, if I picked out a word in this dictionary and I showed you and said to you, how do you say that, you'd probably choke. <laughs> but if I tell you how to sing it, you would sing it, no problems. Kookaburra sitting in the old gum tree. You all know that. So if I was to teach you to sing that, you'd be saying, oh, you'd be having conniptions, I know, because I've seen it happen. But once you sing the language, and that's how, how we taught maths, we taught to sing. One and one and two, two, you know, who taught? And the teaching Wiradjuri language in schools is a key way of teaching and learning because there you teach the children, but teach the family. They can go I, home and that. Can I just say that you need to put pressure on the universities and um, governments also to get this happening because yep. what was put to me at Sydney University was could you prove that there would be students interested oh, in yeah. learning an Aboriginal language or a Tell Torres Strait Islander? So it's ridiculous, mm. that's mm. right. Mm. There's another question up here. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Jacqueline, and the panel for that rich discussion. Um, just a question to Michael. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the revitalisation or the work going on with Tasmanian Aboriginal languages. Mm. We have, you know, the beautiful um, Fanny Cochran wax cylinder recordings. Is there anything you could share on that with us? Actually, it may be that Jackie can <laughs> handle this better because you've been to Tasmania and talked with the uh, uh, language centre there. Um, it's been slow progress and for some time uh, the Palawa were uh, diffident about engaging with the school sector, which is not so good if you want to uh, have a school-based approach. But, Janky, you've got other things to say as well, I think. Oh, I, I think that's the key point, yep. is that the language Palawakarni or Palawagani um, is cranking along in mm -hmm. the community, but um, there is some um, concern in the Palawa <coughs> community that... Um, that the language will be stolen from them. I mean, that, that's, if anywhere in Australia has suffered, the Aboriginal people of Tasmania have really had it hard. Having said that, I've just been doing some work with the people in the Sydney area um, with a language that's now called, um, as you heard from Ray yesterday, you know, depending on where you are in Sydney, there are, um, are different um, names for the language, but um, people are now able to teach their language in the way that Nunnamal is too. And they are people who were the first point of invasion and are um, actually drawing strength from being able to share their language with the wider community in the way that um, Auntie Elaine's talking about with Wiradjuri as well. Um, but the Palawa, I think there's a bit of a journey there to, I think, recover from the atrocities committed on those people, really. So... Um, I think we, we actually have to do morning tea, tragically. Um, I'd like to thank all our um, speakers, and it's been a privilege to sit on this panel with you. And um, I'm sure that everybody can approach our panel here and ask them questions in um, the break time. Thank you very much for keeping us to time. <laughs> I, I really don't like cutting this panel I, I feel like I'm the tyrant. There. You we are a tyrant, watch that's over right. Here. <laughs> uh, but ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for our panel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. Uh, chaired there by Professor Jacqueline Troy with Professor Rowinia Higgins, uh, Auntie Elaine Lomas and uh, Dr Michael Walsh. And, uh, I was a bit remiss to get the title mixed up at the start. Of course, all that discussion about reviving languages. We'll be moving on to names 
after the break, uh, which we're just about to get to. Now, just before we head off uh, to morning tea, I uh, just wanted to run through a few housekeeping items. Uh, toilets are located opposite the lifts on each of the floors uh, for anyone requiring a disabled toilet. 